morning. This morning's scripture reading is Job 2, 11 through 13. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. This is the word of the Lord. So, you know, you had all those names, Eliphaz, the team and I, you did a great job with that. And there's uh, the one guy, you can always remember his name uh, because he's really short. Yeah, you've heard that joke. Everybody's heard that joke. No, not everybody? Wow. Talking about um, Bildad, the shoe height. He was shoe height. I'm, I'm sorry, but in, in Dave's absence, a dad joke was is called for, don't you think? So I want to start first because this makes everybody nervous. I want to start with giving you all these fill-ins, okay? So we're going to talk today about, number one, the suffering of Job. The suffering of Job. And number two... The silence of friends. The silence of friends. And number three, the sympathy of friends. The sympathy of friends. And number four, the strengthening of friends. And you could actually add a bonus one, number five, the significance of friends. That's extra, not in your notes. So. so first we'll look at the, the suffering of Job. We'll return to our old friend, Job, who I've got to speak to you a couple of times about. And we're finishing up the prologue today. The prologue, the first two chapters, that really moves along lightning fast. It gives you a nice quick but informative look at who Job is and what happens to Job. First, we, we remember that Job was, he was the wealthiest. He was, he was really rich, had so many, had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So he's very wealthy. He's also wise um, and very respected. We see that, at, you see that later in the book, how he refers, and very soon actually in chapter three, very soon how he, he talks about being uh, in the town square and being the one that people would come to for, for wisdom. They had problems and Job was your go-to guy to get, to get wise counsel. 
know, so he was respected. He was a family man. He talks about the, the seven sons and, and three daughters of Job and how they always, they got together in one another's houses on their day, whether that was their birthday or just some other celebration. They got together. The family got together, 10 of them, right? They all seemed to have gotten along. and they. So Job was a good family man, too. But above all of that, what we see is that Job was blameless and upright. He was one who feared God and turned away from evil. That's the most important thing to remember. I mean, God repeats that description of Job twice. That's the very first line of the, of the book. Once there was a man, Job, blameless and upright, but then the Lord, in the two heavenly councils meetings, he says, have you considered my servant Job? And he says, the man who's blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Things were going well for Job. He had a good life. He had a very blessed life. Oh, but then those fateful heavenly council meetings. This is where the accuser called Satan or the Satan in our, in our Bibles was allowed to test Job because, of course, his, his suggestion was, well, of course, Job worships you because you have just, like, he's won the lottery here. He's, he's doing fantastic what's not to worship a God who will give you all that so God says well okay take it away and we'll see God allows the accuser to test Job and test him he does as the reports start coming to Job it's in quick succession all these messengers come. First of all, it's news of marauding Sabaeans. They killed his servants and they took his donkeys and oxen. And I alone, you always hear this at the end of these, as the messengers, and I alone was left to come and tell you about it. Then a terrific thunderstorm that consumed his sheep and the servants leading them terrible storm fire from heaven it's called comes down and then a Chaldean raiding party made off with the camels after striking down all the servants and then the worst possible news a father could get a great wind leveled his firstborn's son house and it had all the other nine children in it, and they were all killed. That happened just about probably not in not much longer a time frame than I just said it to you. All this stuff, no time to react. Boom, 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 one after the other. Terrible. So we got this guy that we just talked about a minute ago who was an awesome guy, 
a great family, just respected and wealthy and wow, things couldn't be going better until five minutes later when it was all wiped out. That would be paralyzing for most of us, don't you think? I mean, just really paralyzing. I think I'd be left in a catatonic state. I don't think I'd be able to function at all, but that's not what we see our friend Job doing. Yeah, he, he rose, he, he, he tore his robe, he, he grieved terribly, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and he worshiped. What did he say? He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's amazing. That's amazing, right? Right, right away, we get a clue here, I think. We get a clue that, that this is superhuman, this faith. This faith is superhuman. It's not something that a person can conjure up when that stuff is really happening, right? That stuff is really happening to you. You can't just gin yourself up into, I'm just going to power through this. No, this is superhuman. Something else is at work in Job saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. He's given, he's taken away. It's his prerogative. It was never mine to begin with. He gave it to me. He can take it away. Blessed be his name. So he makes it through that challenge just fine, so to speak. And there's another heavenly council meeting. And the accuser's there. And, and God repeats, have you considered, have you considered my servant Job? Man who's blameless and upright, fearing the Lord and turning away from evil? He had considered his servant Job, and the accuser just wiped out everything that he had. But he says, of course, his health. If you let me touch his body, you let me touch his physical self, not just external, but his physical self, then, then you'll see. Then you'll see that he will turn his back on you. He'll curse you. course God gives permission for that to happen again it makes us uncomfortable I mean it does it makes us uncomfortable that God allows Satan that kind of leverage that's that kind of of power but who's more powerful right it's the God who grants the power the God who knows the end from the beginning who has his own his own purposes. So he strikes Job's body. And now, not only is he grieving terribly for the loss of all his possessions, his whole livelihood, all of his children, property, just everything gone. Now, now he gets 
to endure these oozing, smelly, bloody lesions from his head to his toe. It literally says that it's from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. There's not an inch on his body that's not covered with these sores. And they're not just bad to look at, they're painful. There's no medicine for him. There's, there's no doctors that are going to say, yeah, you take, take this round of antibiotics, you'll be fine in five days. Yeah, there's none of that at that time. He's just got to endure it, suffer through it. Only cure is divine intervention. And at this point, it seems like that ship has sailed. Probably not coming because Job understood even then that, no, it's God has, has actually done this to me. So I don't know why, but that's where it came from. But even in that wretched state, even in that terrible state, Job maintains his righteousness. He responds to his wife, right, who says that Job should curse God and die. Right? That's what his wife says. That's his wife's counsel was, was curse God and die. Well, you know, I... I am a kind of a defender of Mrs. Job because she's lost a lot too, right? I mean, she, she, she was Mrs. Job, the wealthiest, wisest, respected family man. He must have been a great husband, had to be a great husband. Good guy, now he's wiped out, leveled, he's suffering with no end in sight. So she says, curse God and die. We don't know how she said it. I mean, we're just reading words on a page and we're left with a, you know, a bit of a, our own imagination as to how that might have played out. But, but I could easily picture it as being something that sh that's, I hate to see this one that I love so much, suffering so much, the only way I can see that you could get out of this is to curse God and die. But Job says, because he's his good husband, he says, you speak as one of the foolish women. He didn't call her a foolish woman. He didn't say, you're a f you fool. He said, you speak as one of the foolish women. You know the foolish women. They're the ones that don't believe in the one true God, the ones that are just capricious and they just go whichever way the wind blows. That's what you're sounding like right now. But it's, it's like, to me, Job says, I know that's not who you are, but you're sounding like that right now. And he tells her, he says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And we're told in all these things, he didn't sin with his lips. Now that's, that's the last we hear about, um, about Mrs. Job, really. That's the last we hear about his wife. She's not referred to again, except for in the 42nd chapter where we see that she was apparently still hale and hearty because she birthed another seven sons and three daughters for, for Job. So, so 
yeah, that's, that's quite something. So that was 20 kids, if you're doing the math. <laughs> so there sits Job anyway in an ash heap, an ash pile. A lot of commentaries would say that it's the town dump um, because there's a broken piece of pottery. Well, maybe that's a possibility, but it's not necessary. It's not necessarily so. You don't have to make, you don't have to make a guy who's just lost his family, lost his belongings, lost his livelihood, lost his health. You don't have to make him sit in a, in a burning dung heap, too, just to make it worse. It's bad enough. I think it's bad enough, right? Ash heap is fine. I'm going with ash heap. So he is scraping himself with a piece of broken pottery, which broken pottery pieces is, was just a tool of the day. That's what they used. But he was trying to get some, I assume, probably trying to get some relief from all those lesions that were everywhere, itching and hurting all at the same time. I can't even imagine it. So, at this point in time, we get introduced to Job's friends, Eliphaz from Teman, Bildad from Shua, and Zophar from Naamah. Now, we don't know where these places are exactly or where Uz was either. Right? We don't know where those places exactly were, but we can assume they were a good distance apart anyway. There are clues in Scripture in different places on where these places Places were in Genesis. There are some things mentioned that indicate that that uh, it was someplace in the east, but we can't pinpoint it. So it's not like not like we could actually tell you. Uh, any of these commentators could actually tell you. What we do kind of assume, though, is it wasn't just a quick trip. Um, news didn't travel to them overnight about Job's plight. What they probably heard came at least days, probably weeks later from some traveling merchant because, you know, consider that's what they did, these traveling. That's why Job had 300 camels. That were, those were his, his m merchant trucks, you know. They were how he got his, his wares from here to there. So probably a merchant came down and said, hey, have you heard about Job? You're not going to believe this. And they tell the story, and apparently these three are good enough friends. They know Job well enough that they make a plan. They make a plan to go and see Job. So they're going to go take a trip that's, again, days long. right? They don't have a GPS. Well, I mean, if they had, even if they had one, there's, there's no camel caravan setting. So, like there's walk, mass transit, drive, fly, no camel caravan. Even if there was, right, it'd be like, yes, I'll be there. Uh, 
Second day of the fourth month at the sixth hour. I can beat that. Probably figured to make better time, they'd leave the wife behind to cut down on the bathroom breaks, you know. Anyway, we knew that they were good friends. They could, and they considered him a, a good friend. They probably, again, got to know Job through their business dealings, maybe. We're left to assume all of this, but we also assume that these guys knew the God that Job worshipped. I want to remind you again now that, that Job, most people, figure that Job's, Job's timeline was right around the time of Abraham. So it was pretty early on in the biblical narrative. And if we think of biblical theology and we think of uh, progressive revelation, there's more light that's shed as we read through scripture. Chronologically, you, you learn more and more about God. So if we're saying that this was at the beginning, they didn't have a, there wasn't a real bright light shining on exactly who this God is. And there were a bunch of ancient Near East gods that were competitors, so to speak. So there wasn't a, a clear understanding. I say that now because um, later on in the book, we're going to see some really not bright thinking about God coming from these three good friends. I don't think that lessens their, their uh, status as, as truly good friends. Just um, <laughs> as, as Job ends up calling them miserable comforters, right? He does end up doing that. But for now, I want you to stay current with me right in this prologue, just in those three verses. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll look down the road and we'll see where they, they went astray. But for this time, these are some good friends. So they left their homelands, uh, setting aside all their other responsibilities just to be with a friend who'd suffered a tremendous loss. So they finally get to us, and they look out there, and they, and they spy this figure. Is that Job? Could that be, could that be Job? He was hardly recognizable. I mean, imagine, right? Imagine <laughs> what he must have looked like. Some of you have, have been consoled or have consoled others that were going through life, world-shattering tragedy calamity, some kind of terrible loss, the loss of a child or a parent or a spouse, uh, the sudden and shocking dissolution of a marriage, uh, a, a best friend just going off the rails, an unexpected life-altering diagnosis, a thousand other things you can think of, but you've been there. 
and when you're dealing with these people, when you're trying to console these people, these friends, it's like they're in another realm. They're hurting so deeply that it's like they're somewhere between the land of the living and the land of the dead. That they're just, they're not the person. They're not the person that you know. They're not the person that you've been friends with. They just, oh, you can feel it. And you, some of you have felt it yourselves and some of you have seen it yourselves. You truly, truly ache for them. It tears your heart out. Well, that's how his friends find Job. And I really think we're supposed to lean into the grotesqueness of this picture. Because I think what we see, right, is we see on the outside now of Job what he's feeling on the inside, right? There's no hiding that anymore. There's no hiding it. It's right there for everybody to see. This, this husk, this husk of a man who was top of his game, now just a shell, just a husk. It would repel most people. And truly, all but the very closest of friends are going to come to Mrs. Job and say, here's, here's a casserole, is Job around? Oh yeah, that's him out in the ash heap. Well, tell him we said hi and we're thinking of him. And away they go, you know? But, but close friends don't do that. They lean in. They don't turn away. They lean into suffering and, and hardship and tough times. So they were stymied, these three friends. They see him. What could they possibly do to comfort this guy, this friend? What could they possibly do? What words could they say that were going to help ease him, alleviate? No words. There's no words. So what did they do? They showed their love and their care for Job by going and sitting in the ash heap with him. Just sitting there. They didn't say a word. Seven days, seven days they didn't say a word. They wept with him, but they didn't say a word. Some commentators suggest that that seven days is the seven days of an appropriate mourning time, grieving over a death. Well, there certainly were enough deaths uh, to mourn over and to grieve over at that time, but I'm not sure that's it. Others can, others would say uh, that it's that it says that they didn't speak to Job, but they spoke to one another about Job. Eh, I don't buy that either. I think that's reading ahead, right? I prefer I prefer to lean into the uh, love and care. I'm going to give 
the friends, just as like I gave Mrs. Job the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to think that they really loved and cared for him. Um, let's see. I've skipped over. I haven't skipped over anything, but that was the silence of friends, number two. Number three, we're on now, the sympathy of friends. The sympathy of friends. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant said, the friend in my adversity I shall always cherish most. I can better trust those who help to relieve the gloom of my dark hours than those who are so ready to enjoy with me the sunshine of my prosperity. This is a wonderful statement. I'm just going to repeat it. U.S. Grant, the friend in my adversity I shall always cherish most. I can better trust those who help to relieve the gloom of my dark hours than those who are so ready to enjoy with me the sunshine of my prosperity. Some of you know this. Some of you experienced this. Maybe all of you, a lot of you, that when things are going well, you've got a lot of friends. But when things are not going so well and you need somebody, there's precious few around. Seems like Job apparently had plenty that abandoned him. But these three didn't. For that week, for that seven days, Job could not have had better friends. Just to let them know he wasn't alone, that there were still people who cared for him, spoke more than any words ever could. Again, some of you know how this is. Either consoling or being consoled. You know, you, you see your hurting friend and your eyes connect and the, your hearts just synchronize at that moment. You've done this. You've seen hurting people. And you, your eyes meet and there's no words spoken, but it's, it's magical. It's just your hearts connect. They do. And there's no words that you can say that would mean more than just your presence and your love. The circumstances, the person's circumstances, Job's circumstances hadn't changed at all, but somehow just the presence of a friend helps them to take the next breath. Another, another 19th century saint, <clears throat> J.C. Ryle, said this. This world is full of sorrow because it is full of sin. It's a dark place. It is a lonely place. It is a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joy. That last, that's a keeper. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joy. It does. Now quickly on to number four. The strengthening of friends. So the Bible puts obviously a high value on friends and friendship. It, and this can be traced right back to the beginning when in, in Genesis 2, the Lord 
God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. We've been going through this in Sunday school, so this is not unfamiliar to you. Of course, it was pertaining to marriage, but it's more than that because they were to what, multiply, fill the earth. Why? To bring more people into the earth, more people to interact with, Friends. Friends. See, God's a triune being. We know this. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And at the very beginning, there was perfect communion between those three. There remains so to this day. So there was relationship right from the beginning. So obviously, we're not supposed to be lone rangers. We're not supposed to be just like out there on our own. We're built for friendship. We're built for relationships. So we see certain special relationships where God used friend language. Adam walked with God in the garden. Now walking refers to an intimate relationship. So we're talking of friendship here, Adam and God. And then in Genesis 6, we read that, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, another friend. And then Abraham. Abraham is referred to as God's friend in Isaiah uh, chapter 41, 2 Chronicles 20, and by the Apostle James in chapter 2. And then in Exodus 33, uh, we read, The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend. And David was called a man after God's own heart. I want you to think of those people that I just mentioned. There's kind of an interesting thing here. We've got Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. Uh, covenants. Ah, interesting. These are all men that God made covenants with. Interesting. Now listen to this, okay? So in John 15, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I have had, or all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Okay. Interesting. So Jesus says the men, the, the men that were his friends, were told what the Master's doing. The men who were God's friends, these covenants, they were told what the Father was doing. Job, we read, Have you considered my servant 
Job. Have you considered my servant Job? Doesn't really call him a friend. There's a difference. Now, servants, of, there's still a close relationship, obviously. He called Noah blameless and, and upright, and he called Job blameless and upright. So there's a lot of similarities, but he didn't call Job his friend. He said, my servant Job. Now, what really, as we look through the book in Job, as we go through the book, that's Job's big complaint is, God, I don't know what you're doing. Why is this happening to me? Why? What's going on here? Spoiler alert, he, God never tells him. He never says why. He never says why. We wish, again, <laughs> we wish for a 43rd chapter, you know, a sequel, something that would say, this is exactly why, but he never gives Job that. But we, right, as believers, as friends of Christ, we get to know. And that's not to say, get this, that's not to say that everything that happens to us in our lives, because we're friends with God now, we're going to completely understand. That's not what that means. But we have been told that all things work together for the good of those that love God. It works for, for God's glory, for our good. And we can trust that. And we can still question and still wonder why. Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? But we also have that confident assurance that Maybe we don't know. Maybe we're not going to get that answer here. Maybe we never, but uh, remember the, the great resignation was what a sermon that I did last time, I think. The great resignation. We resign ourselves to understanding that God is in control and he does have it under control and he's got a super big, really big, huge, super master plan that is being worked out through your life and my life and all of history a little bigger than us a little more than probably my feeble brain could really grasp anyway so we'll trust we'll just trust so we can agree anyway that that Joe there that God's word puts a high value on friendship this is the bonus part the significance of friends so maybe it's time we look at then how is the church doing how's the universal church doing in this friendship aspect how's the local church doing and then maybe how am I doing and you doing how are we doing personally in this friendship thing, um, first we'll look at the what's called the universal church. That's an ugly name, but it's what it is. You can find it in Second Peter, um, chapter two, where Peter says to the believers in Christ, "Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." This is the church that he's talking about. 
all the brothers and sisters that have been adopted into Christ's, into God's family through Christ from across all time and everywhere in the world. That's what makes up the heavenly assembly. That's what the universal church is. When Christ returns, his bride, the church, will be gathered together and there's going to be perfect harmony. Oh, glory. <laughs> we can't wait for that. But until that time, we're still a bunch of sinners saved by grace to see some things differently. We have our tribes, and sometimes it doesn't seem like there's much unity. There's denominational splits over minor things, sometimes really major things. And that's what makes the headlines, and that's what paints the ugly caricature of, of Christians. And the enemy loves that. So what can we do about it? Well, I think then we get down to the local church. That is believers meeting together at a certain location, probably under a certain denominational moniker. Um, so what can we do about that? We hear we're a Grace Baptist Church. Um, just means it just this is where we've set our boundary lines, so to speak. This building isn't a church. I've said this, probably say it every time that I get up here, but this building isn't a church. This building is a building where the church comes, where the church comes to meet, where believers come to gather together. That's what the church is, is the people, it's not the place. So if you didn't get that, I'm saying it next time too. So. But so to start with anyway, what we can do is just love our neighbors. Just show them that what they might see on the news, that's the exception. That's not the rule. That's not the standard or the norm for Christians. But getting more personal, how about how are we, how are we here at Grace Baptist? I have to say that one of the things I, that I, I sets this flock apart is the way that after the service ends, you guys don't leave. It's like 45 minutes. It's funny, too. Like, get this. Get this, right? It gets to be, okay, it's like it's 12 minutes to noon. I'm going to get you out of here on time, ish. But, but like it gets to be noon and there's people start getting, or close to it, people start getting restless. Like, is he going to finish? Is he ever going to stop? And then you're anxious and you're like fidgeting. And then it ends and you don't leave. You're still like, what's the big deal about leaving, you know, noon? Anyway commentary but anyway I do love it how how we really seem like we love each other here I, I say that in only in jest because I believe we do right I don't think we're pretending I think we do love one another here 
and it's fun to see because you know the interactions afterwards are not just certain cliques. You see that in places, right? It's just not these four and these four and no, it's like everybody's talking to everybody else. It's a really awesome thing to watch. Now here's one thing I would say is pay attention as we're doing this after church. Pay attention to those people that are quiet. Right? They're quiet. They kind of come in and then they slip out and maybe a nod and a smile and things like that, but not a lot of conversation. I'm not saying tackle them, but pay attention and, and just try to get to know if there's anybody in here, if there's anybody from this side that doesn't know somebody from this side, right? Get to know people. Get to know everybody in here. There's not that many of us that we can't each know one another, so... So just pay attention to that, right? Because what I've been describing is friendliness. That's a good thing. Friendliness is really good. But it's not friendship. That's like another level. This is where it starts getting more personal. I don't mean to offend anybody here. Um, maybe challenge or convict. Sure, we'll let the Holy Spirit take care of that. But how, how are you personally doing in the art of friendship? Do you have a person or more than one that you can really go deep with? And you know what I mean, right? Go deep with. It's not just all superficial stuff. The people that you run into that, like, your heart jumps a little bit when you see them in a place that you don't expect. Like, oh, there they are, your friend. And you go and you... And your five-minute trip to the grocery store turns into, like, all afternoon. Hold on to those people if you have those kind of people in your life. Because it's increasingly rare. I'm sure there are some in this room that can't bring one person to mind like that. Loneliness is a blight in our fast-paced world. I see it. I work with, with I, I say elderly people, but I'm one, so older people. Anyway, I work with older people, and that is truly one of the blights in their lives is loneliness. They maybe lose the ability to be independent and get out themselves. And, and from, it's, what they hear all day is tick, 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 right? There's just not, not much, and it's loneliness, and it's terrible. And they're literally suffering in silence. I'm not just saying the elderly either, because there's people, there's, there's possibly, probably people here that are going through that. And you know, the, the times have changed and they're continuing to change and our pursuit of true friendships has not kept up. We quickly point to social media as one of the problems, you know. 
I mean, I have 518 friends on Facebook. Yeah, no. <laughs> Not real friends. Precious few of them know very much about me at all. So one of the blights, one of the problems in our age is, is this busyness. Busyness. How many times when you ask somebody, how are you doing, that the answer doesn't come back? Busy. Busy. So busy. Boy, am I busy. Can't believe how busy I am. Which basically is saying to the asker, don't have time for you. <laughs> right? We wouldn't say that. And we really don't probably mean it. Maybe sometimes. But yeah, no. Busy. I'm so busy that I got to get going somewhere else that's more important than this. Ah, that's ugly. That's ugly. But our culture puts such a high value on busyness, right? It's like, fill that calendar up. Is there a spot on your calendar? If there is, you probably feel guilty about it. You're like, what am I going to put there? Well, you'll find something, won't you? That's what we do. That's what we do. It's, and it's not, I'm not praising us. Right? I'm like, uh, the, the, my favorite Paul Washer line, what are you clapping about? I'm talking about you. I mean, like, you're involved in two Bible studies. Um, you're on a committee or two. Your kids are in sports and dance, and you run them six places every week. You don't have any time. Like mealtime is either in a crock pot or, or something you can throw in the air fryer, or maybe it's like fast food in the car on the way to or from somewhere. Not the way it should be, right? We can do better than that. And that's, we're just talking like, in some cases, just church obligations keep us way busy, way busy. And you throw work and every other thing in there. It's like, how do we even, how do we stop? Where's the time for true friendship? Where's the time for a friend in there? There isn't any time for a friend. And we're suffering, we're all suffering because of it. We are. And you know what could what should be our closest friendships in this world, our marriages suffer because we don't have time. Because we don't have time, because we're just like brushing up against each other. You go this way, I'll go that way, we'll take care of this. We'll get these kids where they need to go, we'll do this. Where are you going tonight? Oh, I got a Bible study. Oh, well, where are you going? It's, we're, we're not, that's such an important relationship. That's, that's a foundational relationship in the world. Sorry, Kathy told me not, don't be waving my. It's the only bit of advice she gave me. She just like set your water bottle down, Dick. So I want to just say this one thing. 
um, because it is coming upon my time. I have more here, but I'm not going to keep you. I'm going to let you guys just mingle and have fun. But maybe it's time, right, that we recalibrate our lives. This is not news to you. You've heard this a hundred times from a hundred different other sources. Slow down. Stop thinking you've got to be so busy. Start evaluating what you're doing. What's the goal of what you're doing? And is it approaching that goal? Or is the goal just to be busy? Because that's what we are. No, I'm telling you what, I need a friend. You need a friend. I'm open. I'll make time. Let's be friends. I want to read something that Paul Tripp wrote, and Paul, in his usual no-nonsense style, said this. He said, we live in interwoven networks of terminally, terminally casual relationships. We live with the delusion that we know one another, but we really don't. We call our easygoing, self-protective, and often theologically platitudinous conversations fellowship but they seldom ever reach the threshold of true fellowship. We know cold demographic details about one another, married or single, type of job, number of kids, general location of housing, etc. But we know little about the struggle of faith that's waged every day behind well-maintained personal boundaries. One of the things that still shocks me in counseling, even after all these years, is how little I often know about people I have counted as true friends. I can't tell you how many times in talking with friends who have come to me for help that I've been hit with details of difficulty and struggle far beyond anything I would ever have predicted. Privatism is not just practiced by the lonely unbeliever. It's rampant in the church as well. I think that that privatism has deep and ancient roots and it goes back to the garden, it goes back to the fall, it goes back to sin and what happened when that separation happened was, was Adam and Eve hid. They hid and they're still like an amputated limb in us is that phantom itch that still makes us want to hide from one another, right? We've been forgiven in Christ. We've been forgiven. But still, still we hide. Still we hide. So I'm saying what we need to do is remember your relationship with Christ because that's the number one most important relationship is the one with Jesus Christ. That's your truest friendship. That's your truest friendship. Some of you have been hiding from that relationship you're coming you're enjoying the you're enjoying the camaraderie but you don't really have that number one relationship that relationship that is going to be the foundation of every other relationship it's what you want it to be stop hiding stop hiding come to Christ talk to somebody talk to somebody There'll be people up here after the service, but there's also a bunch out here that know who Jesus Christ is. And if you've got a question, if you wonder about that relationship, how it starts, 
how it continues. If you want to stop, stop hiding, talk to somebody. Talk to somebody. Go, and then go to Jesus. Repent of these sins. Repent of these sins. Accept his free gift of grace. Grace is such a beautiful word. 